Ten years ago, a biology researcher would have been limited by the software tools that were available. Most of the electronic record-keeping was done using Excel and other general-purpose tools. Benchling is a suite of software tools that were designed to simplify the lives of life science researchers. Benchling helps with sample tracking, experiment design, and workflow management. Sherwin Yu is an engineering manager at Benchling, and he joins the show to discuss the workflows of the life scientist, how experiments are designed and managed using software. Life science researchers in both academia and industry use Benchling, and Sherwin spends time talking to both of those groups and understanding what they need from their software tools. We also talked about the impact of CRISPR, robotic cloud laboratories, and other future developments. I also want to announce that we're looking for writers for Software Engineering Daily. We want to bring in new voices. We're focused on high-quality content about software that will stand the test of time. You are listening to content about software engineering right now. You probably also read content about software engineering. Do you want to write? Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash write to find out more. We're looking for part-time and full-time software journalists. We want to explain technical concepts and tell the untold stories of the software world. We're looking for writers who only want to produce a single piece of content, and we're also looking for people that want to produce a series or an in-depth investigative piece. We just launched a new design at softwareengineeringdaily.com, so if you'd like to work with us, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash write. You can also send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Sherwin, you are an engineering manager at Benchling. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hello. Thanks for having me, Jeffrey. So Benchling is a set of tools for doing life science research, biology research. And when the company got started, the research tools for life scientists were quite outdated. So I, when I was in college, I worked in a biology lab for a while. And I remember using lab notebooks and spreadsheets. And if I were to try to do that work now, I would just be driven insane because it would feel like a very outdated workflow. Talk about some of the outdated workflows in the life science sector that Benchling is trying to improve. It's funny that you mentioned that because I also had a, quite a bit of lab experience in high school and college and felt similar frustrations with the tools that people were using. And I think that was one of the big motivations for our founders as well, who both had a lot of extensive lab experience in college. So to give you a, a picture of what lab tools and like lab workflows kind of look like nowadays... A lot of it is still done in paper and pencil. So you will literally be required in lab, depending on the lab that you're working in, you might actually be required to just make all of your recordings in paper in uh, paper and pen. And that is not good for a number of obvious reasons. Like everything else has moved to like being done on a computer, but this stuff has not. So for instance, if you like spill coffee on your lab notebook, that might just be like an entire year's worth of research gone. Or if someone steals it, that's entire years of research gone. On top of that, you basically also have issues like it's hard to search your lab notebook. So if you actually want to have a sense of like, oh, 
I think I've done an experiment on a similar topic before, but it might have been four or five months ago. How am I going to find that? You have to literally just flip through uh, your lab notebook until you until you find that date. And then beyond that, there's also just like it's hard to like have full context of like what is actually happening because if you're struggling to keep up the pace of all the notes that you're producing over time, you're just not going to document as much. So if you had some sort of tool that would help you track like experimental conditions or the results that you're seeing and you don't have to fill that all in by hand, you would just spend a lot less time like logging and writing up your experiments and more time actually doing the research and thinking about the problems. So that's an example on the like lab notebook side. I would also say another good example would be the actual tools that people are using. So in biology, people, scientists will be working with DNA sequences, right? So as you probably know, DNA sequences are just these long strings of uh, bases. So like the letters A, C, T, G in like extremely complicated permutations. There are some people who still basically use effectively like a glorified text editor to like look at these bases. So it's like they will open a gene, which might be thousands or hundreds of thousands of bases, and then try to like find, oh, I want something from like the 5,000th position. And then they will just like copy and paste that by hand. It's like, oh, I want to select bases from 5,000 to 6,431. And then they will like copy that and then maybe send that to a colleague in email, or maybe they'll paste it into a spreadsheet to do some subsequent analysis, but it's a mess. So basically, you would probably want some dedicated tools to actually help you analyze, uh, edit, like filter, uh, and understand your biological data as well. And then I would say one last thing is just uh, collaboration in a lab is quite challenging. So to give you an example, actually, when I was in college, we would run our experiments. So you're doing these like gel electrophoresis experiments where you basically run DNA on a gel and then it fluoresces under UV light. So you would like bring it under this like fancy machine and then it would, you would basically like take a uh, image, you would take a scan of the gel. But this is all in like one integrated lab machine, which is probably running like Windows XP or something. And it's like not connected to the internet. So you then have to like plug in a USB drive. It's exporting the image in some super outdated image file format. So then you have to like drag that onto your USB drive, bring that back over to your laptop. And the entire process takes like 10 minutes. So like, wouldn't it be great if like all of these super expensive machines would just like understand how the internet works and how modern collaboration software works? You gave four examples there. So the first one was simply taking the spreadsheets and the lab notebooks and making them into domain-specific software. This is a, a very low-hanging fruit. You can This is the classic. You look at any industry and find the spreadsheets that some knowledge worker in that industry is using and figure out the, the macros and the columns and the rows that they're using and then build like a CRM or some similar software around that. That's one of the things Benchling does. The second thing you mentioned was the usability of the data. So you have these super long strings of DNA and you have people opening up text editors, finding the 5,000th position, copy-pasting from the 5,000th to the 5,050th position and pasting that somewhere else. That's obviously an error-prone type of action to take. 
and you mentioned the problem of connectivity between different lab modules, the gel yeah. electrophoresis. This is a hardware, specific hardware that's dedicated to pouring agar gels into and then doing protein measurements of, of the weights of different, the breakdowns of molecules, I think, in, in protein that run through that gel. And then that the, the end result is some image. And so you have all these, and that's just a, a, an example of a piece of hardware in the lab that is not smart. So you have these, this collection of problems. Basically, you could walk into a lab and find those problems and find probably 50 other problems with the software stack in the lab and the integration between the software and the hardware. Why has laboratory software been so immature and so mediocre for so long? Why haven't these problems been addressed prior to Benchling was started in, what, 2010 or something? Mm-hmm. 2012. 2012. So, uh, it's been about six years, yeah. Why did it take so long? We've had life science labs with computers in them for a really long time. So to be fair, when I say it's like the DNA editing example, I mean, it's not quite that bad. Like it is like, it's not just you're opening it in Notepad. Uh, there are going to be some like helpful features, like the existing tools that uh, were around before Bunchling, but still a pretty error prone experience. And like, I think the actual copying of, you know, I want to like find the specific range is actually a pretty common occurrence if you're like browsing a sequence online, because it's just a, it's a pretty outdated web page, And it'll just like, like, oh, here's the full contents of this DNA sequence or this gene, and it'll just spit it out at you, right? So there have been approaches to all of these things in the past, I would say. I think the frustration is that even the existing... So it's not like people have just been like twiddling the thumbs, doing everything manually for the past like decade and a half. I think the concern is that the tools are simply not very good. They're not very usable. So even if a, an existing tool is trying to address the problem of like, oh, how do I design and edit a DNA sequence? The existing tools are pretty unpolished. They're not designed. The way I would explain it is that it looks like like 90s like software, like 90s enterprise Java applet software, if that makes sense. And you're asking for like why that's the case. I've thought a lot about this. I think one big reason is that at the end of the day, biologists and scientists are biologists and scientists. They aren't engineers. So they don't have the mindset of, oh, like I have this problem in my workflow. I have the attitude or like the capability or the skills to actually go on and just change it or improve it. Whereas that's a very, very different mindset from what we have in engineering and tech and especially in Silicon Valley and in startup culture where it's like, like think about how all the startups are basically making tools for other startups or other tech organizations to use. Or I think it's a very common engineering mindset to say, hey, I have this broken tool. How can I make it better? How can I make it faster? And I think it's simply a matter of the, the fact that like we as engineers have the capacity to improve our tools. And tooling is a really, really important part of engineer's workflow. Yeah, I mean, it's second nature to us as software engineers to think about how to improve the workflow. And it's not as second nature. I mean, if I walk through a building... I'm not sophisticated enough to know why are the steps in that place? Like, why is the elevator in this location? Why are there only two elevators as opposed to four elevators? I would not be well equipped to improve a building that I walked into. 
But I'm sure if an architect or a civil engineer or an architectural engineer were to walk into a building, they would see all kinds of flaws with that situation. I mean, when I was briefly in biology before I was in computer science, I didn't even consider that, dear God, why is the workflow like this? Because I didn't even have the mentality of the software engineer to, to improve those things. So Benchling has developed the set of tools for improving the workflow of a life scientist. What does Benchling do to change the experimentation process? Give me a, a picture of the before and after. Maybe if you have an example experiment in mind that that could be useful, but help me understand how Benchling changes the experimentation process. Sure. So I would say Benchling has a pretty profound effect both for individual scientists and for teams of scientists working together. And then more and more as some of our more recent investments in our product is focusing on actually like entire R&D organizations. So teams of teams of teams working together. So I can start at the individual scientist level. What you basically have there, I would say is like, so I mentioned like common things for biologists to be doing are like basically, oh, I need to design a DNA sequence or I need to like inspect some DNA. And then I also want to like record my experiments in a lab notebook. So we have this molecular biology suite, which is a DNA editor, a protein editor and a built-in analysis tools. And then also this electronic lab notebook. So each of those get you as a scientist. If you are trying to design or edit DNA, you can think of a DNA editor as just, it's like what a IDE is to your engineering, to, to your source code, right? So it'll high, it's like there's syntax highlighting. Uh, so in, in DNA land, that would be, oh, we want to highlight areas of interest on this DNA sequence. So this promoter is regulating this gene, and then the gene will be highlighted, and the promoter will be highlighted. Or we want to say like this entire area codes for this protein, and that'll be an annotation on the on the sequence. And a lot of this is using just existing like portable DNA sequence files. So we support uh, a number of those files, and it's sort of just like so you can always like get your data in and out of Benchling because there are existing DNA and sequence and protein sequence repositories. Other nice things that the DNA editor provides are just access to really, really common and some of the more advanced uh, analysis tools as well. So I would actually say one of the cool things about working at Benchling is that frequently we get to like implement a lot of cutting edge like bioinformatics algorithms. So if you've heard of the a lot, a lot of the buzz around CRISPR, which is a pretty revolutionary way to allow uh, gene editing, it's like if you actually want to design a CRISPR experiment, it's a pretty computationally expensive operation. And right now, I guess I would say maybe five years ago when CRISPR experiments were just taking off, people there was a lot of interest in it and people would try to say, go to like the professors who are working on CRISPR, they will, when they publish the paper on CRISPR, they will also host a website and it's like a PHP script on their academic domain. And of course, that's not a super great experience. So what we end up doing is we'll take some of these like cutting edge algorithms that are, you know, it's all the, all the stuff is like fully described in their papers that are publishing. So then we'll basically productionize them. So we'll add a really, really nice usability layer on top of it, ensure that it runs and it scales in production, give it like high availability, things like that. So when you're using your the DNA editor or the protein editor eventually, you have like direct access to all of these things. Whereas before, what you would 
frequently have to do is like, hey, I'm working with this DNA sequence. I want to run a sequence alignment, which is basically I want to see how similar these two or three or four or any number of sequences are to one another. And I want to align them together. In cases like those, you would have to like pre-benchling, you would have to open an existing utility that does sequence alignment really, really well, you would have to paste in your sequences, and then you would run it. Or you have to like go to a website and some professor's academic uh, homepage, and then paste in your DNA sequences and run it. But because Benchling is trying to be this all-inclusive research platform, like we can just run it directly for you because we have already implemented those algorithms and you just like, like the, all of Benchling is aware of all of the DNA sequences that you have on Benchling and you can just like, you know, in a type ahead, say like, oh, I want to align these four sequences and you could just type them by name and then it'll auto-populate. You mentioned designing a CRISPR experiment being computationally expensive. What can you tell me about the process of designing a CRISPR experiment? When you're designing a CRISPR experiment, you basically, to give some background on CRISPR, it's basically a way to make very, very precise DNA edits, so like cuts and insertions. And the way it sort of works is that you have a guide, which is like a short DNA sequence, so maybe 20 uh, base pairs, 20 letters. And you attach that guide to essentially these like protein scissors that will allow you to edit DNA specifically. So the guide is what, it's like a homing missile. So you're attaching this like homing component to this like DNA editing component. And the two things in it as a system will basically find the specific place in your uh, entire genome that you want to edit and then make the edit that you want. So now there, this is where the computationally interesting portion happens. If you design a guide that is like too long, then it might be overly specific and it won't match anything. But if it's too short, it might match in too many places. So if you imagine like the entire genome of a human is like 4 billion base pairs. If that were all just like random, then there are going to be a number of like, like the the one place that you're trying to edit is probably just going to randomly occur some number of times, depending on how long the uh, guide string that you're looking for is. So what you end up having to do, and there are like lots of fancy, the biology is considerably more complex than just this, but you basically need to balance a number of factors in terms of finding how you can actually match your guide against the genome. So typically a CRISPR algorithm will say like, hey, I want to make edits at these particular positions and I want to like design the best possible guide that like maximizes the specificity for this region and minimizes what we call like the off-target score, which is like how likely is this guide going to bind in places that I don't actually want to be editing. Because if you make it edit somewhere else, that's really, really bad because you know you're cutting up DNA. So that that would be an example where like computationally it's intensive and we actually like have done some pretty interesting performance operate optimization on this. Uh, we use in the back end we use like AWS Lambda to spin up these like super massively parallelizable genome searches. There's an entire blog post on this that one of the other engineers at Benchling wrote, and I can send that to you. But it's actually like a really, really fascinating technical problem because it is, if you think about it, super, super parallelizable. But then there are also like, you have to think about if people want to do these searches in like sub-second time, how do you get it down to be that fast across 
a number of genomes. So some researchers will want to work on the human genome, and then we basically want to like index the human genome. But then some researchers will want to work on like a strawberry genome or etc. So there are a number of technical challenges, and I'll send I'll send you the link to the blog post. Are you developing these gene search algorithms yourself, or are you able to take these off the shelf from papers that have already been written? Yeah, we more or less take them uh, off the shelf. So we're definitely not in the business of trying to do like groundbreaking science ourselves. At the end of the day, we are trying to build a research platform. Frequently, we will make optimizations to the algorithms, though, because a lot of the times, you know, the white paper or the the methods that a professor or is publishing in academia is not super optimized, and they don't need to be because they don't need to run it at scale or run it at in a production environment. CRISPR specifically, how is CRISPR changing the life science research field? So I will share my own opinions on this. I think CRISPR is probably the biggest development in molecular biology since the discovery of the structure of DNA. So that would be like in the in the last 100 years, it's probably up there next to, to discovering the, the structure of DNA. And simply put it because it allows unprecedented specificity and effectiveness of gene editing at like a fraction of the cost of the techniques that came before. So gene editing is something that we were able to do beforehand. Like there were multiple approaches and techniques ranging from things that have some amount of specificity, even to like a technique called site-directed mutagenesis, which is like, oh, I just want to like randomly mutate some positions in my DNA. Of course, that has no specificity. It's basically completely random. But what CRISPR gets you is that it's like, I would say it's like giving you a surgeon's like tools with that level of specificity and precision compared to beforehand where you might be trying to like operate on the DNA with like a sledgehammer. And what this actually allows you to do is, well, I mean, the implications are are profound in disease. So there are a lot of just genetic diseases where like you just have this mutation in your DNA. And if you have it, then, you know, you'll have some uh, inherited disease and, that, and that, that leads to a lot of like human suffering. But what CRISPR will allow us to do is go in and edit that gene and then basically edit DNA in living organisms. And then there's like complementary technologies like the gene drive, right? Because then you need to be able to propagate that gene to the body, right? You have to edit it and then you have to propagate it. Yep, yep. So uh, the gene drive would be something like, people talk about this for say malaria a lot, where let, if we just like introduce this into the like mosquito population, and then over time, this gene will just propagate throughout the entire mosquito population. I think there are, like, I'm by no means an expert on that, but it's certainly pretty fascinating. In human therapies, for instance, though, one area where, where CRISPR has really shown a lot of promise is addressing diseases in any part of the body where the cells live very, very long, where there's like low cell turnover. So say like nerves or like in the eye where your cells basically are going to stick around for a long time, because then when you like make an edit to the DNA within a cell, it's going to stick around for a long time. Okay, so I get that this is a useful tool and the implications are profound. What's the state of the tooling? How usable is CRISPR today? What can you actually do with it? Are the experiments at the toy level, or are they actually at the therapeutic level and the deployment level? Give me a, a feel for the landscape. So there are a number of uh, CRISPR, I would say, biotech startups. 
that are in the process of commercializing their therapies. So, and this is, these all basically popped up in the last five years or so. And just to give you a sense of how like the pharmaceutical industry operates, typically the timescale for like bringing a drug to market is on the order of like 10 to 20 years. And those would be like more uh, traditional small molecule drugs, but this just more general trend of biologic drugs. So biological therapies, such as things empowered by CRISPR, has really, really changed the game in in terms of how we actually deliver and do research on these therapies. So I would say there are a number of companies that are actually like doing this in clinical trials. And there's still ongoing research and actually like uh, improving the technique itself. So scientists have still been discovering like sort of like sibling systems to CRISPR that might offer even uh, more specificity or uh, have some of the drawbacks addressed or uh, work differently in different conditions. So are the people using the Benchling product, just to revisit Benchling, so it's this suite of tools that your day-to-day work is you are a life scientist, you're a biologist, and Benchling is at the heart of your workflow. How many of these people are using CRISPR tools? or, or, I mean, can they just explore CRISPR tools? Do they have to actually be doing some kind of experiment with CRISPR to actually make use of the Benchling CRISPR tools, or are there ways to like play around with it in the software realm? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. We basically do have a standalone CRISPR tool. That means that you don't really need to use Benchling's lab notebook. You don't need to use Benchling's bioregistry. You don't need to use Benchling's protein editor. It's like, basically, I have this genome, and I want to run a CRISPR experiment. I want to design some guides for it. And you can just do that in Benchling. It's a big source of our academic customers, actually, because of the buzz of CRISPR. So a lot of people will might use... They, they might hear about CRISPR at a conference or from a colleague, and they might want to just check it out, see how it works. And the first place that they might go to would be like an academic website. And then they realize it's like a pretty bad experience. And then a lot of uh, people end up pointing them towards the Benchling tool. So there are like a ton of people who are just playing around with CRISPR. And then we also have, of course, a, a good number of scientists, both in academia and in industry who are using it like professionally for, for the work. Okay, so let's say I'm in industry and I'm trying to develop a new therapeutic treatment for, I don't know, name your malady. How am I using Benchling? Can you, can you help me understand the workflow of the enterprise life scientist and how this software suite, the workflow suite of Benchling fits into their day-to-day work? I mentioned a little bit earlier that we have this lab notebook and this molecular biology suite. And I would say those are mostly impacting individuals, right? But now, now how does that actually scale at an organization? So I would say the f- you can think of this as like, like how about this? I'll, I'll walk you through like as the complexity of a organization uh, grows, like how does Benchling fit their needs, right? So at the individual in, at the individual level, you are probably just like, oh, well, I don't really care about collaboration. I just want a nice lab notebook and I want a nice DNA editor. And we have that. So a lot of our academics basically use that because it's like a grad student working alone, or maybe it's even a student in class and they just want nice tools. Now, if you are, say, like four or five people in a academic lab working maybe under a professor or under a postdoc, you will have some amount of collaboration and our tools already support that. So you can 
have a shared folder. You can like see each other's comments inside of a lab notebook entry. You can leave comments for one another. All of, no more emailing files back and forth to your team, etc. Now, if you're in a more like a more established lab, so this might be say like fifty people working together, either in industry or in academia. This is when sort of communication starts getting interesting because now not everyone knows everyone. Not everyone is working on the same experiment and you are going to start seeing duplicated effort or like, hey, like someone recently did an experiment on this gene and had some result. Like, where can I find that result? So this is where you basically want to start building like a bio registry, like a database that is a system of record of all of the biological information and learning of your organization. So when you get to something like that, you can basically think of it as like a library where you can register individual biological entities. So a typical workflow like this might be, I am a scientist, I'm doing some experiment, I'm trying to design a new sequence or design a new plasmid. I like run some, I, I do that and then I characterize it, get some results. All of that would happen in my like private workspace or maybe in like a small private folder shared with some collaborators. But then after I have really polished that up, then I want to basically share that with the rest of my organization. So then I would register it and put it into our entire lab's bioregistry. One way to sort of think about this might be like, oh, I am working on a branch and I, it's like going to be pretty rough. So the, in tech, I would be working in a branch. I can get comments and feedback on the pull request. And then eventually we clean it up and then we want to like bring it into master. We want to merge it, right? So this is a way where we say like people can have their own sort of tiny workspaces. And then once they have fully finished investigating something, they will uh, share it with the rest of the team. And then this addresses a few problems. One is that like, now you actually have a canonical representation of all of the biological data in your lab. So if we're like all doing research on the same DNA sequence, we should probably have an agreement on like exactly which version of that DNA sequence we want to be using as an example. So is that how drug discovery works where it's similar to a process of this branching and merging that we see in in computer science-based jobs? Not quite. So this would be for a smaller lab, like on the order of 40 people. Drug discovery, like the organizations that have the resources to do something like drug discovery, and, and this is sort of like, this leads me to my next point, is basically like, okay, I'm, I'm actually going to have like multiple divisions or multiple teams all working on the same like research effort, which is like, oh, I want to bring these promising therapies to market, right? And in that case, this might be even a, a step up behind above like a 40-person team where you actually have like teams of teams working together. And this is where you would want to basically support. So in, in an organization like this, you will have entire teams dedicated to performing a certain function. For instance, there might be like a protein assay team and their job is basically to receive to basically support the other research teams by performing certain experiments or analyses on the proteins that are going through the pipeline. So you can think of a larger organization as basically being extremely process-oriented. They have like a pipeline. Every team is playing its part. So you need a much better system of sort of tracking progress on a number of experiments or projects across teams and also across the entire organization. So the most recent product that we've really been investing in is called workflow management. And it's basically how do you uh, monitor, optimize, uh, organize research and development across a, a large organization? The show I did in the past that comes to mind is 
the one I did with Transcriptic, which was this robotic hardware cloud lab. Essentially, the idea is you have some experiment that you want to run in the cloud, and they have all these different machines that are, I don't want to say taped together with duct tape and chicken wire, but that's basically what it is, where you have all these pieces of legacy hardware in the biology lab. You've got PCR machines and centrifuges and gel electrophoresis machines. And this stuff doesn't really talk to each other natively. So what they have had to do is to build these interfaces between the different machines in order to stitch together workflows between them and have robotic arms that carry samples between them. And I can imagine it would be quite useful to have data from each of these steps plugging into something like Benchling, especially if you are one of these giant companies that's doing drug discovery. And at each of these steps, you've got manual data entry. Like, I mean, it's great that you have a piece of software like Benchling that facilitates the workflow, but it still sounds like throughout all these steps, you have a human in the loop where the human is recording data and there is a potential for inaccurate recordings. What is the state of the integration between the hardware and the software in biotech? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. It's certainly a big, big opportunity for Bunchling. Also, I think Transcript is a super, super cool company. Um, I think there are like some pretty interesting parallels between what uh, Transcript and Bunchling are doing. But as far as how we can integrate like all of these disparate data sources in produced by various machines in the lab. One thing that a lot of our enterprise customers want is basically APIs, right? So some of the more modern machines basically will pr- like provide API access. So like you can, an example would be like, I want to like scan a plate. So this is a common operation where I basically have a, a grid, like say it's like a 10 by 10 grid like a physical grid. And in each of those cells is like a container with some sample of DNA or some biological sample. I could like individually pipette like volume from each of these things into my machine and then uh, like have it do the reading and then like pipette the next one, have it do the reading, record it and basically do this like manual operation a hundred times. But you know, if, if this is a large a well-funded research organization, why would they pay their like extremely expensive scientists a bunch of money to manually pipette like liquid back and forth? So there are like machines that basically do this for you, right? So it'll basically take a reading like of the entire thing at the same time. But then how do you get that data? So this is something that Benchling is currently addressing right now. Uh, we're building integrations with these machines that will allow it to talk directly to Benchling. So it'll just drop those results directly into your lab notebook. And it'll also associate it with the correct biological entity that is already in your like organization's bioregistry. So as a whole, I think this is a big opportunity both for Benchling and for life science research as in general. Do you have to reverse engineer the protocols of these hardware devices in order to get them to talk to Benchling? Not too much. A lot of the more recent ones will, it's like provided. There have been cases uh, in the past, uh, in the early days when we were doing some reverse engineering. Uh, I remember one time we, this is when we were very, very young, just like I think four people or so. There was a university lab that was like, at the time, if we could get them to sign on to Benchling, that would have been great. But they were like, oh, you know, all of our DNA sequences are in this proprietary format. 
how can we get them into Benchling? And then we reverse engineer the file format. <laughs> You're an engineering manager at Benchling. How much domain expertise do you need to have in biology to do the job effectively since you're effectively engineering tools for the biologists? Yeah, that's a good question. So I actually studied both computer science and biochemistry. So I I have a fair amount of just a biochemistry or molecular biology background. It's kind of funny because at least in college, the course that I was uh, least excited about was like wet lab biology, where you actually have to go in on a Wednesday or Friday afternoon for four hours and like basically move tiny amounts of liquid. Painful. Right. Uh, And I remember talking to my advisor at the time and I said like, hey, I'm mostly interested in the computational stuff. That's why I'm double majoring. I'm never going to do lab work. Why do I have to do all this? And then, you know, they said, you just take the class, right? But nowadays, that's the class that gives me the most, that is actually the most relevant for my work because it gives me a lot of empathy for our uh, our customers who are just scientists who actually are doing this wet lab biology. But to, to answer your question, most of the engineers at Benchling do not have a uh, like a biology or a biochemistry background. And that's totally fine because we have like PhDs and scientists on staff to help ramp people up, to give them the proper context on biological workflows and such. At Benchling, if you're, say, working on the marketing or like the customer success team, then it's pretty expected that you have some biological experience. I think for us, we also have a big culture of learning. So Uh, Even though a lot of people are trained only as engineers and not as biologists, we do journal clubs where we'll have one of our senior scientists actually just walk through the science behind one of our customers' workflows. And people definitely really enjoy learning about the biology and getting exposure to it. There have been a number of listeners that have written in and asked for more information on engineering management, more conversations around engineering management. Tell me what you have learned as you've gone from being an engineer to being an engineering manager? Yeah. So to just give a little brief background, um, I've been at Benchling for about four years. And for the first year and a half or so, I was an engineer. And then the last two and a half years, I've been an engineering manager. It's been a really, really interesting ride. I could speak to, I guess, some, some general learnings around engineering management or... I could also sort of talk about uh, how we do it at Benchling and how sort of the the unique position that Benchling is in, how that actually affects. So I'll, I'll talk about Benchling in particular. So the sort of interesting things about Benchling is that, well, first, it's an enterprise software as a service company, and that has a lot of implications. And then it's also not just enterprise, but it's like in a pretty technical, like domain-specific vertical, so life sciences, right? So we are life sciences, enterprise, software as a service. And then the last component I'll, I'll add to that is that our team and our company's core competency has always been its product. So we hire very, very talented engineers. All the engineers are also very product-oriented. So they participate in product discussions. They have opinions on design. And as a whole, Benchling is, I think, the usability and like the product experience of using Benchling is a tier above a lot of our competitors. So these three things have some pretty interesting implications for how we like basically do our work and then also how uh, I think about the team's growth as a manager. So to give you an example, Benchling will never be the sort of company because it's enterprise SaaS that uh, say like has 
like week over week, like the user count is growing by 20%. It'll, ne- it'll never be like a Snapchat or a Twitter or something like that. So what that means is that you have to think about how to keep people excited and motivated at the company when the, the company is growing at a pretty like s- steady, but not like exponential blowing up rate. And, and I, I, there are plenty of things I can talk about that there. Other sort of like interesting implications are that because we're selling to a pretty, I would say like slow moving risk averse industry. So like life sciences, so pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, that also changes how we think about product development. For instance, like why would a like multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical company trust their intellectual property, like all of the science and the workflows that they're doing on this super tiny startup, right? So that has also been a uh, interesting struggle. Our general strategy for that is basically we sort of like go up the chain. Like we first sell to like and get buy-in from really, really small companies that might just be a professor who is commercializing his or her research with the postdocs. So that's maybe like a 30-person team and, you know, really, really do a good job with them and then figure out what product we need to build for them and then go for the next tier up on the ladder. So it might be in a 100-person a like more established biotech company, but still definitely not like a like a pharmaceutical giant. And for something like them, we would probably like the needs of a larger organization on Benchling are going to be slightly different from the needs of like a 30 person company. So then it's a lot of uh, what, what I was call like product co-development. So we before we even sign a deal with a customer like that, we spend a lot of time really, really understanding their workflows understanding what they like actually understanding what their pain points are what the problems are and how benchling can provide value to them and it's tricky because you don't because we're not a consulting shop right we don't want to build a tailored solution just for one particular customer so we have to hear what they're saying and then also align that with like benchling's overall vision right but we basically have to sign these uh, co-development contracts because otherwise these larger companies aren't going to trust that we're actually going to like deliver because like why would they if we're such a unestablished company co-development means you're like contracting for them but you're building software that is your ip yeah i would say that co-development means that they are very very engaged in the product development process so we take their feedback at every step of the way from ideation to like actually talking to their uh, scientific leads to talking to all of the people at their organization and then sort of cross-referencing that against our own internal product vision. And we would, for many of these customers, we would actually sign like a statement of work that would outline exactly what we want to do for them. So that's more about the product development side of things. So I imagine you're interacting with the C-suite, you're interacting with the salespeople, you're interacting with the product developers, and you're talking to them about how you're going to translate that into engineering reality. So that's one side of your job. What about the side of your job where you're bringing that vision into implementation? You're interacting with engineers. You need to understand human psychology. You need to understand how to uh, ratchet certain deadlines for the engineers. You need to know how to orchestrate sprints. This is tactical stuff that is... Not easy. There's no recipe for this stuff. Even though people know about sprints and OKRs and typical engineering management rules of thumb, bringing this stuff in, into reality is is uh, far harder than I mean, as I have found. I've, I've kind of been doing some engineering management the last the last year or so, and it's 
it's hard. It's it's not straightforward. So what lessons have you learned about the the process of managing engineers that you work with? Yeah, yeah. I would say that almost all of the like the unique like interesting engineering management challenges that arise at Benchling also are highly tied to the fact that we are like an enterprise life science company. So it's definitely the case that the like engineering management at a company like Benchling is going to be very, very different from engineering management at, at like a consumer facing web app or like a consumer facing startup. So to give an example of that would be, well, because we have enterprise clients, that means we also have deadlines. We have a lot of deadlines. And that's a tricky situation because it's a pro because it means that you have very, very clear focused understanding of what you need to do. You can tell that's delivering like real value for the company because like if we finish this sprint and hit this deadline, we are literally unblocking this deal and that deal is directly contributing to the revenue of our company and our company's bottom line. The con that you have to sort of uh, address or manage is that, well, it means that people don't always get to work on what they want. And it means that people will frequently be pressed to do things, to take shortcuts or to not necessarily address all the technical debt. So we have to make very deliberate trade-offs between both product polish and like technical polish. Like if we want to do something correctly, it might take additional seven days, but the deadline's in four days. So uh, how do we reconcile that? So I know we're nearing the end of our time. So I, I wanted to ask you about a question that's totally far flung from engineering and engineering management and benchling, which is the reproducibility crisis. So there is a reproducibility problem in life sciences. So scientific results will get created once through a series of biological experiments and it's often difficult or nearly impossible to reproduce the same result. So was there anything else you wanted to add about engineering management? Or, or you know, are you interested in talking about the reproducibility crisis for a bit? I have a, a few things I could add about engineering management, I guess. Maybe some of like actual, like the actual insights or learnings that I, I've had, because I've sort of been talking. Yeah. So one pretty big realization for me as an engineering manager is just how do we think about growth, right? This is super important. A company like Benchling, as I mentioned, because we're not growing super quickly in headcount. And I think at a company like, say, Snapchat, where there are tons of people joining every single day and the entire company, like in the early stages of the company, just feels like it is a rocket ship. You can headcount growth and company growth sort of solves all problems because there's so much momentum and people just feel excited. But when you don't have, when that's not the case, when you're only hiring an engineer every month or every couple months and the company is growing slowly and steadily, then you actually have to be a little bit deliberate about how do you make sure people are motivated? How do you make sure people are still learning? And how do you make sure that this is a good place for them in their career? So the way I like to think about engineering management is that you basically want, I, I as a manager, I basically have two customers. One is my team and one is the company. So I need to make sure that uh, my team is happy and motivated and is growing and all the things that they are doing are aligned with their ultimate like personal goals and personal and professional goals. And then I also have to make sure that the my team as a unit is delivering on its commitments to the company. So engineering management fundamentally is about this trade-off of, okay, sometimes I will have to sacrifice a little bit of what might be most important for the company uh, in order to give this, to allow one of my engineers to take some more time on a project that would be really, really good for her growth. When we actually think about growth, I think one like good framework that I, I, I've really enjoyed is basically thinking 
in terms of like breaking down as like craft mentorship, which is just technical mentorship. How are you thinking about engineering problems? How do you implement things? How do you design them? Your familiarity with the tools. So all of that is like the actual craft of engineering. And I would say there's career mentorship and that's like sort of bigger picture thinking like, what are the major achievements that you want to accomplish in the next year? What are the general areas that you want to grow in? What would your ideal career look like at Benchling and outside of Benchling? And then I would also say there's a number of like life skills mentorship. And that's things like, oh, how do I relate to disappointment or to failure? What is, how do you make sure that you are motivated and excited at work? How do you make sure that you are not working too hard? Uh, how do you make sure that you're making the correct uh, decisions and or, or a good example is like when you feel let down, how do you think about that? How does that affect your ability to to like be a contributing member at your team? So a lot of the I would say like emotional intelligence, emotional skills is like a last piece that I think a lot of engineers struggle with and can be like mentored and can be practiced. So to close off, I want to talk a little bit about the reproducibility problem in life sciences. So scientific results often get created once through a series of experiments, and it's difficult or in some sad cases, completely impossible to reproduce the same result, which makes us call into doubt all kinds of biological conclusions that we may be taking as axiomatic after some scientific research proves or claims to prove that something is true and if we can't reproduce it we you know is it true and so explain what the problem of reproducibility is in more detail and do you think that tools like benchling are going to help solve the reproducibility crisis or at least alleviate it yeah. So I think you, you did a pretty good job of sort of outlining what the reproducibility crisis is, but to actually go into the, like the mechanics of like why this might actually be happening. So as you mentioned, this is basically when a scientist, like a team of scientists publish a paper and they have some finding and then people try to reproduce this finding. They follow the methods uh, that the scientists outline and then they do, they do not get the same result. So that is troubling for a number of reasons, but basically it, it sort of shakes the the foundation of the scientific method on which like all scientific research is is being built, right? Like you want to like as people produce incremental results and publish those in papers, we want to be able to trust them because like you're building this sort of you're laying the knowledge foundation for uh, research to that will depend on your research that you're publishing. There are a number of reasons that can cause this to happen. And they're sort of all interrelated to like the state of science as an industry as a whole. So one big factor would just be like, there's a lot of pressure to publish. It's basically as a scientist, that's how you're measured. It's, it's like the name of the game is publishing papers. You want to publish papers. And as it stands right now, you really can only publish a paper if it's like a noteworthy result. So if you do a bunch of experiments and found that there is no relationship between X and Y, then that's not that noteworthy. Whereas if you say like, oh, when I increase X, Y goes up as well, then that is at least somewhat noteworthy. And then you're like, people are trying to publish results uh, that are positive as opposed to like, oh, like the state of the world was not changed. But what this sort of incentivizes, and I'm not saying most scientists are actively sort of being disingenuous in their work. I think even subconsciously, what this incentivizes is people to really, really want 
results that are meaningful to the point where it can actually distort the scientific method. An example would be if you're designing an experiment. Uh, so, so suppose you're you're trying to measure like the effect of like plants at your uh, at a like university setting. Like if you have plants, then does that affect people's behavior? Do they smile more? This would be like an example of some sort of like so- social science experiment. If you aren't very clear about how you define the limits of your experiment from the beginning, then you could just literally wait until your data looks good and then publish it. So how that might look is you say, okay, we like have these two experimental groups. There's one classroom where we decide to add a bunch of plants and we want to see what effect that has. And there's another classroom where we just like where we didn't change anything, right? And then over the course of two weeks, we can see, oh, people uh, students are more engaged in the classroom, but maybe that doesn't actually happen. So then maybe what if we wait three weeks? Uh, no, we haven't seen any change yet. What if we wait four weeks? Oh, wait, someone sort of uh, like you, you notice a change in the behavior in the classroom. And then you say, okay, now let's like end the experiment, right? And then you would see that if you just look at that, then you're basically fishing for the result because you didn't say upfront when you wanted to like stop this experiment. So this is like a pretty common problem in science. It basically means that because you as a scientist are pressured to find like meaningful results, uh, you will be subconsciously incentivized to like distort your experiments to the point where you can actually find something. So I can also sort of speak about what the solutions might be and how Benchling could actually potentially play a role in this. I think there is one vision where like biological research or, or I guess scientific research in general is completely open sourced, right? So right now, like compare like the biological world or the scientific world to say GitHub. On GitHub, like everyone is publishing their work. So it's not research, but their code, right? Leading tech organizations contribute. So industry participates as well. There's just a lot of, there's this sort of like spirit of generosity. People want to give back to the open source community. Even if you're not actively contributing, you just want to put up a repo and like open source it. That's the basically the exact opposite in academia and in scientific industries, right? In academia, you are heavily incentivized to publish only things that really, really matter. And after you publish it, it's behind a peer-reviewed journal. And these journals are basically gatekeepers because not everyone has access to them. But what's probably the the worst part is that because journals have a limited ability to distribute, like they have limited capacity for what research they want to highlight. And they're sort of these like prestigious gatekeepers. Journals are incentivized to only like put out papers by scientists putting that are discovering like really, really significant results. So no one is going to publish your experiment that said like, oh, there was no effect between X and Y because that's like just basically not that interesting. But what this means is that like you could have say, eight people performing the same experiment, unaware of the other eight teams doing the same experiment. And then if only one of them just by some random chance sees a result just within normal statistical variance, like gets a result, they'll publish it. And then the eight other people who like performed the same experiment found that they didn't like see a relationship between X and Y, don't publish it. And then now the entire world thinks that like there is this relationship. So I would say like one big thing that we could do is just find some way to encourage people to actually share their negative results. Because like, do you basically have this selection bias right now where people are only sharing results that are prestigious or significant, and that greatly skews and contributes to the reproducibility crisis. I think how a platform like Benchling or even other organizations 
could be playing a, a part in this is basically just bringing the attitude of like open source community to science. So in we, I'm benching at least a lot of academics will collaborate across labs via Benchling. You can have like your uh, lab organizations page on Benchling. It'll highlight the papers that your lab has published. It'll also mention the like actual DNA sequences that your organization has used. And now this isn't like directly addressing the problem where people aren't publishing their negative results, but at least it's creating sort of like a community like GitHub where people feel free to collaborate and share their data. Well, that makes sense. Sherwin, I want to thank you for coming out Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been great. Wow.